Uh, Wednesdays, First Timothy three, and Saturday is. Uh, I guess we've got, uh, we're doing Romans, uh, we got through Romans 1, we'll say Romans 2 for this next week, uh, and uh, I, I will say that uh, uh, just pay attention to emails and different things that go out in the case we have to make last minute changes due to weather or because of health concerns with uh, my father-in-law and stuff, uh, so uh, just kind of keep an eye on, if we have to make any changes, I'll make sure to get an email out and uh, we'll... We'll plan normal stuff with the caveat that we might have to make changes uh, if necessary. So with that, let's, uh, let's pray, and we'll go to the Lord and worship. And uh, I should say, we need you guys to sing out today, right? Oh, glorious Lord, we just give you praise uh, for this morning in which we can gather to give you praise and worship. And I recognize that it is extraordinarily cold outside, and I just uh, I want to thank you for not only those who, who braved the weather to come, but for the technology that allows us to, uh, to stream the services to, to those who are unable to come. And so, Lord, we just pray for your anointing upon the service. We pray for uh, just your presence, not only uh, in-house, but those who are tuning in online. Uh, and we just pray that you would just remind us of, of who you are as we think about the, the image of the Good Shepherd and all that that conveys for us. And just the intimacy and the relationship that you've called us into. So, Lord, just speak to our hearts as we gather, as we bring our concerns, as we bring our praise, uh, and as we just bring ourselves into uh, a place of worship and praise through Christ, who has taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right. I am reading from Isaiah 12 this morning. And Isaiah 11 is where he uh, talks about and prophesies Israel being regathered. And so chapter 12 is a song of praise thinking about Israel being regathered. On that day, you will say, I will praise you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have had compassion on me. Indeed, God is my salvation. I will trust him and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. We are gathered here this morning to lift up our voices in praise and worship. And we're going to start out with How Great Thou Art. Please stand. <laughs>
for singing out. Sounds really nice. You will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation, and on that day you will say, Give thanks to Yahweh, proclaim his name, celebrate his works among the peoples. We continue on with Come Thou Fount. Our scripture reading today is from John chapter 10, verse 1 through verse 21. I'll be reading for the ESV. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, 
for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is hired, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not in this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He is a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of the one who is opposed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? May God bless the reading and hearing of his word, and may God bless Pastor Dan's message. I have a, a website that I could sometimes go to to search for certain uh, sermon illustrations, and this was uh, just a, a blanket illustration that I gave. It says, uh, I like the story of a young woman who wanted to go to college, but her heart sank when she read the question on the application blank that asked, are you a leader? Being both honest and conscientious, she wrote, no, and she returned the application, expecting the worst. To her surprise, she received this letter from the college. Dear applicant, a study of application forms reveals that this year our college will have 1,452 new leaders. We are accepting you because we feel it imperative that, we have that they have at least one follower. <laughs> There's at least one honest person in the 1,452 leaders, right? You know, so many leaders, uh, who do you follow? So many voices, who do you listen to? You know, uh, as you think about uh, the world around us, we have a lot of people that would call themselves experts or leaders or teachers, but there's this cacophony. How's that for a fancy word? I, I, I was impressed with myself this week when I thought of that one. Cacophony of opinions and, and voices, right? Uh, on every matter under heaven. And, and as we think about it, having an opinion doesn't make it good, nor do all who lead take you where you want to go. 
And I know it's hard to believe, but not everyone has your best interest at heart. And there are those who pray for you as well as those who will pray on you. And sometimes those who pray on you will surprise you because they come in religious cloak. Uh, you know, as you think about Jesus, Jesus often confronted the religious leaders of his day. And I just put together a nice little litany for you of some of the things Jesus had to say about the religious leaders of his day. Uh, they preach, but they don't practice. They lay heavy burdens on the people. They do their deeds only to be seen by others because they're seeking after places of honor, desiring greetings and titles of respect. They shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. That's not a very good characteristic for a religious leader. But just because you call yourself something doesn't make it so, right? They make people twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. They're blind guides who have neglected the weightier matters of the law. They look good outwardly but not inwardly. Uh, inwardly, they're full of greed, self-indulgence, hypocrisy, and lawlessness. They devour widows' houses. They break the commandments of God for the sake of their traditions. Now, if you want to go check any of this stuff out, uh, check out Matthew 23, Mark 12, 40, and Matthew 15, 3, right? So there's just three passages of Scripture that gives us that whole litany, litany of some of the things Jesus said about the leadership of the day. Who do you listen to? Who do you follow? Because whose voice you listen to determines the direction that you're going to go. Now, as we've already uh, noticed at this point in the chronological life of Christ, uh, the religious leaders have not really been doing a very good job of caring for the sheep. And they have viewed themselves as leaders, and they would be recognized as leaders by the people, but they have not led in God's ways. And, and one of the beauties of, of doing things chronologically is we kind of follow and we see how things build upon one another. So in chapter 9, uh, from last week, you might recall, we encountered a man that was born blind. Jesus heals him of his blindness, and he comes, and he's testifying to the religious leaders, and what do they do? They treat him roughly, and they kick him out because they don't like what he has to say about Jesus. And we see Jesus finding the very same man that's cast out of the synagogue and leading him to faith and worship. Chapter 10 is going to follow with a denouncement of false shepherds. Huh, I wonder if there's a connection between the two. And he's going to describe these false shepherds in various ways. So we're going to see images of thieves and robbers and hired hands and so on and so forth, right? Uh, and, and what we're going to see is this contrast between the false shepherds and the true and good shepherd that we are to listen to and follow. So our passage presents us with a, an extended metaphor that's using imagery that might be unfamiliar to us. I don't know about the rest of you. I did not grow up on a sheep farm. Okay, so it might be unfamiliar to some of us, but it was very familiar to Jesus's audience. And so he speaks of sheepfolds and gatekeepers and thieves, robbers, shepherds, doors, and of course, sheep. Incidentally, it's not my favorite image that Jesus uses to talk of us, right? But, uh, but it is an image just the same. Uh, and one of, the, one of the questions, especially since we're starting a study on Revelation, and as we're looking at an extended metaphor here, as I thought maybe it would be good for us to ask the question is, what does it really mean when we say we take the Bible literally? Well, what it means is we treat the language as it was intended to be treated, right? We understand the different types of literature, and we treat it accordingly. So as you think about the Bible, we have various literary forms, right? We have 
historical narrative, we have direct discourse, we have epistle, we have poetry, such as the Proverbs. Now, do you treat poetry like you would a historical book? We have prophecy, we have epistles, we have, of course, figurative language. Uh, Jesus used parables and similes and metaphors and allegory. Now, what happens if you treat a, a parable the same way you do a historical narrative? You get the wrong conclusion, right? Figures of speech allow one to say more while saying less. Now, for instance, as I was thinking about this, especially since we're in light of uh, the Good Shepherd of John 10, uh, most of you, I would ex expect, if not all of you, are familiar with uh, one of those psalms. It's a, it's a popular psalm. What is it? Uh, oh, Psalm 23. Psalm 23 begins with, The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Five words. But think about what's communicated in those five words. Intimacy, relationship, protection, provision, care, nurture, Think about all the things that's communicated to us through five words simply because it communicates through an image. A picture is worth a thousand words, as they say. Why does the Bible use metaphors and similes and figurative? Because it can communicate far more, sometimes by saying less, simply with giving us a picture. Now, with that said, back at seminary, one of my least favorite classes and honestly, it was a tough competition probably, right? But that's another story. One of my least favorite classes was the church and the arts. And the reason why is this, you know, this class explored uh, architecture and music and paintings and the arts as, a, as means of reflecting and conveying theology, you know, faith and te as teaching tools and so on. And, but when you think about all of these aspects, right, what are you dealing with? You're dealing with symbolic and figurative language. So, for instance, when you think about old churches, they always had stairs going up to the pulpit, right? That's a way of elevating the Word of God. There was a theological message to that. When you think about the high vaulted ceilings, there's a reason for that, right? They were communicating a, a message through the architecture and so on and so forth. But, but when you deal with figurative language and when you deal with symbolic language, there's more room for interpretation, right? Remember, this is the guy that likes math because there's always a right answer and a wrong answer, Right? With figurative language, there's more room for interpretation, but interpretation still has to fit into the room, right? So while there might be more room for interpretation, it still has to fit with the context, and the context has to support the interpretation, right? So more room for interpretation, but it still has to fit in the room. Now, this is going to be important as you think about Revelation, for instance. It's important as you think about the parables and as you think about figurative language. But as we look at this text for today... Uh, Jesus is the expected shepherd that we should listen to and follow. And we're going to call this, we'll say this is the big picture that overshadows all the details. So if you don't pick up on all the details, as long as you walk away with the big picture, uh, you've at least come away with the big picture, and that's the, the point that matters, right? And, and as we look at this text, we're going to see that there are legitimate and illegitimate shepherds. There are those that we should rightfully follow and those that we should flee from. And the backdrop of chapter 10 is, are you ready for this? It's chapter 9. I know that's deep. That's what my seminary education gave to me, right? In chapter 9, where we see the supposed leaders are robbing life in contrast to Jesus who came to give life. 
So what we just saw as historical discourse in chapter 9, Jesus is going to now also convey to us through metaphor and symbolic language. So this background is still in view as we come into chapter 10. In fact, if you come into, uh, as we come to the end of our text today, you might notice that when the people are divided over Jesus, one of the questions they're asking is, how did he open the eyes of the blind? Right? So this, this is still the background for us because who you listen to and who you follow will determine where you end up. Now, Carson writes, and I quote, if this background is primary... Then in the context of Jesus' ministry, the thieves and robbers are the religious leaders who are more interested in fleecing the sheep than in guiding, nurturing, and guarding them. They are the leaders of chapter 9 who should have had ears to hear Jesus' claims and to recognize him as the revelation from God, but who instead belittle and expel the sheep, end quote. Now, verse 6 makes clear that Jesus is using figurative language to teach divine truth in the same way that he'll do with uh, parables elsewhere. But in this case, what we have is an extended metaphor. In other words, uh, we're not dealing with literal sheepfolds, thieves, robbers, etc. right? We have to ask the question, what do these pictures represent? What is the metaphor communicating? So in these initial verses, we have a, a common morning scene to help point us to deeper spiritual truth. Now, what you would have in this culture and in this day is sometimes some of the smaller families with fewer sheep, they would pool their resources together and they would share, they would share a sheepfold, right? Because sharing a sheepfold meant that each of these individual families did not have to hire individual shepherds for each of their flocks. They would pull them all together. They would pull the resources. This is called economics, right? And the sheepfold would then have a gatekeeper to keep watch overnight until the respective shepherds would arrive in the morning and they would call out their sheep and lead them out by name. Now, the fact that each shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them out presupposes what? That there's sheep in the fold that belong to different shepherds. All the sheep don't belong to the same shepherd, right? So the shepherds come, the gatekeeper know which ones are legitimate, and the sheep that belonged to each shepherd would know which shepherd to follow out of the fold. Now, the gatekeeper would know who to give and who to deny access to. Now, in this particular text, the gatekeeper is unidentified for us and never gets explanation. So, uh, I actually read uh, one scholar commentary uh, that suggested the gatekeepers were the leaders who should have recognized Jesus and given the right of entry. Now, Remember, figurative language gives room for interpretation, but it still has to fit in the room, right? That would mean that the leaders were both the gatekeeper and the thief. I think that's a recipe for problems, don't you? Let's just make our thieves the gatekeepers, right? So while there might be room for interpretation, it's still got to fit in the room. I'm going to say I really don't see an argument for that one. Others suggest that the gatekeeper might represent John the Baptist, who opens the door by testifying to Jesus, and John Hart writes, and I quote, uh, Jesus is the legitimate shepherd, and he fulfills messianic prophecy. Just as the best man stands with the bridegroom, John 3, 29, so the words to him the doorkeeper opens, verse 3, may depict John the Baptist's role as a forerunner to Jesus. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Uh, now, that's in the room, Right? 
He says, may depict John the Baptist, may is a key word, right? So there's a strong possibility. Jesus doesn't tell us for sure, but it's a strong possibility. It's within the room. It could be a very good possibility. Or it could also be just the possibility that Jesus is using the gatekeeper to convey uh, that he's come in the right way and he has a legitimate authority, right? Either are, are possibilities that are within the room, but both of them are within the room of interpretation. The gatekeeper being the religious leaders, not so much, not in the room, okay? Now, if the shepherd is only leading some of the sheep out of the fold, then not all of the sheep in the fold belong to that shepherd. So notice in verse 3, he is only leading out, whereas later as we get into the extended metaphor, he shifts to leading in and out, right? And at that point, he's also including sheep from a different fold. So we might be asking the question, well, what's going on here? Because we have a fold that has various sheep in the same fold, and he's leading them out. And then we come later, and we see that there's another fold with other sheep, that he's leading in and out. Well, the reason is the sheepfold of verse 1, it's not heaven. It's not the church. Right? You know, I, once, once I get led to heaven, I certainly hope somebody's not leading me out and leaving me out, right? Because that's the image of the first verse. The sheepfold represents Judaism. Think about what's been taking place in the chronological life of Christ. Think of where this chapter is going to, uh, where these verses are going to end up. They were divided over Jesus. Some are hearing and recognizing his voice and following. Others are not hearing his voice and recognizing and following. The sheepfold is Judaism. And some are going to recognize Jesus and follow him. Others are not. Now, when we get to verse 16, when we have Sheep from another fold, that's the inclusion of the Gentiles. Now, this is important because some will say that, uh, well, that represents other religions. That's not what it teaches at all. It's Jews that are going to follow Jesus as the Messiah. Gentiles are going to hear his voice and follow him as the Messiah because we're going to have one flock with one shepherd, the Messianic community, those who have recognized and heard and followed the voice of Jesus. But if you notice in the text, we have this level of intimacy. Right? He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out, verse 3. The sheep follow, for they know his voice, verse 4. I know my own and they know me, verse 14. Now consider, consider how it makes you feel. You, you, th think you, you gather with a group of people, maybe some people you haven't seen for a long time, and you come up and think of how it makes you feel when they remember your name. You know, until you recognize, remember that you don't recall their name, right? That's, that's another story. You know, uh, he knows your name. He calls you out by name. You're not a nobody, but a somebody to him. And the true shepherd, in contrast to the false shepherds, the one who is willing to lay down his life for you, that you might be given life through him, right? He calls his own by name. There's an intimacy that's communicated through the image. Now, in this part of the world, sheep were led. They were not driven, right? In other parts of the world, uh, sheep were driven. Here they were led, right? And, and as I thought about that, what that means is, you know, it's really on you how closely you follow. Because the shepherd's not driving, he's leading. And if you want greater intimacy, now how's this for deep? Follow more closely. 
knowing that the greater distance that you keep, the greater possibility of going astray. You know, living out your relationship with Jesus, that's upon you, isn't it? You know who can't listen to Jesus' voice for you? Me or anybody else. You know who can't determine how closely you follow Jesus? Me or anybody else. You know who can't determine how often you spend time in prayer or in his word? Me or anybody else. How closely you're going to follow. I remember a conversation I had with a, a guy one time. I said, you know, too many Christians are, are just, they're, they're just too comfortable with pre-digested food. He's like, well, what do you mean by that? I said, they want everybody else to do the work for them. They'll come to church, they'll listen to sermon. You know, I've been working and studying in the scripture, and, and there is a place for that. Don't get me wrong, there's a place for that. But they never get in the word for themselves. You know, they, you know rather than, well, since we're starting Revelation in Sunday school, rather than studying the book of Revelation, uh, they want to just hear what everybody else has to say about Revelation. Rather than studying what the gospels say, they just want to hear what everybody else says. They always read books about the book, but they never read the book. How closely you follow is on you. Incidentally, it also is going to determine how well you can listen to his voice and how easily you might be deceived. Because if you're following from a distance, that gives a lot more opportunity to hear other voices, doesn't it? Now, uh, Gangle writes, and I quote, uh, but who is the stranger whom the sheep avoid? We do not want to put any dogmatic assignments on the particulars of this parable. But one thing is clear. The stranger is anyone other than the shepherd they know. Strangers abound in our day in a variety of religions and cults as well as the secular domain. There's a lot of voices, a lot of so-called experts, a lot of religions, a lot of cults. Whose voice are you listening to? And who are you following? Jesus is the expected and legitimate shepherd whom we should listen to and follow. So in verse 6, it says, this figure of speech. Now, that's, that's my first clue that we're using figure of speech, right? It says, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, verses 7 through 18 is not so much an explanation, right? Some, sometimes Jesus gives us a parable, and then he explains the parable. Verses 7 through 18 is not as much an explanation as an expansion, right? So he's going to rephrase some things. He's going to add some details. He's going to mix some metaphors. So, so it's not a, an explanation of 1 through uh, 5 as much as an expansion building off the same imagery as 1 through 5 because he's going to add some details for us. For instance, now Jesus is also going to talk about the door. And now we're not talking about the sheepfold the same sheepfold as well. So let's uh, dive in as we look at this section. As such, through him, we're saved and we are given life. So verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Right? So we're adding another image now. Imagery has shifted just a bit. We're no longer at the sheepfold with the gatekeeper where there's various shepherds or, or various uh, sheep to various shepherds, but we're, now we're pictured out in the open field. Now, when you're out in the open field, there would be times that the shepherd would need to make a makeshift pen, right? We're no longer at home base. We're out in the field with our own flock of sheep, and sometimes we're going to need a makeshift pen at the end of the day to protect our flock from all the dangers abounding. So the sheep would enter the pen individually, 
And individually, they would each walk by the shepherd. And as they each came by the shepherd, the shepherd would inspect them and he would tend to any needs that the sheep might have. And then uh, Merrill Tenney writes, and I quote, See, this is what they would have all understood, that we need help in understanding. After all the sheep had been counted and brought into the pen, the shepherd would lay across the doorway. Remember, this is the makeshift pen out in the open field, not the permanent pen back home, right? Would lay across the doorway so that no intruder, human being, or beast would enter without his knowledge. The shepherd became the door the sole determiner of who entered the fold and who was excluded. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Now, not only are we to listen and follow him, through him we're given access to provision, to protection, and to spiritual blessings. Right. So as we look at the expansion, notice we're going to expand what he does because with the initial fold, he only leads out. But now we come to verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and go out and find pasture. So we can only enter by Jesus, but entering is defined by two, it gives us two elements, right? He will be saved. So we have a picture of salvation, but also he says he will go in and out and find pasture, as opposed to the initial metaphor where he was just leading out of that initial sheepfold. So Jesus is the only one through whom we can enter the kingdom. Salvation is not about what you do, but it is about who you know. But what's meant by the language of in and out? Well, Jesus is not only our source of salvation, but of spiritual blessings. Provision, protection, joy, peace, access to the Father, peace with the Father, right? Not only salvation, but also the spiritual blessings that we now enjoy. You know, uh, uh, people in general want to add years to their life. Would you say that's a fair statement? People generally want to add years to their life. You know what Jesus does? He adds life to your years. Think about that. Joy, access to the Father, spiritual blessings. All of our spiritual blessings are, are him. You know, Jesus adds life to our years. Now, incidentally, he also adds years to our life, right, with eternity. But before that, he adds life to our years. Now, Carson comments that go in and out to find pasture may allude typologically to Numbers 27, 15 through 17, where Moses prays for a successor who will lead the people in and out, uses the same language so that they will not be like, quote, sheep without a shepherd. Now, that successor's name in Hebrew was Joshua. The Greek translation for his name in Hebrew would have been Jesus. The meaning of which is the Lord saves. So through the scripture, Jesus is declaring that only by entering by me, there's salvation, there's security, there's provision, there's protection, there's life, there's redemption, there's abundant life right in and out finding pasture all of this he's communicating through the image of a shepherd and a sheep so life and salvation are dependent on a relationship to jesus and this is illustrated as well by the by the contrast or the foil so verses 8 and 10 all who came before me are thieves and robbers but the sheep did not listen to them and then jumping to verse 10 the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy i came that they may have life 
and have it abundantly. Now, throughout the teaching, uh, Jesus uses four metaphors to refer to false shepherds, right? So we have thief, we have robber, we have stranger, we have hired hand. Uh, and honestly, they don't all have to refer to the same group, even though they all lead to the same result, right? There's no evil ascribed to the hired hand and stranger like the thief and the robber. But neither is there salvation or life found in them. Now, the difference between thief and robber, sometimes there's a difference with a distinction, and sometimes there's no distinction, right? So some say uh, the difference is the thief is one who uh, is by stealth and the robber one by violence, right? There are different Greek words, and that's possible, but it's not necessary. Uh, I'm just throwing it out there that possible, but not necessary. Uh, but what Jesus may have is Jesus might be broadening his view that he had in the first verses with just the current religious, religious leaders from chapter 9 to now be, he might be adding in some messianic pretenders. So, for instance, you have the Maccabean leaders uh, back in their history, right, in which Newman write, writes, uh, quote, Jesus is comparing the Pharisees to the leaders of the Maccabean revolt, whom the people willingly followed with messianic expectations. These people were indeed thieves and, and bandits, and Jesus is affirming that the Pharisees are not better. They have only come to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus has come to give people life. So it could be that he's kind of broadening the image a little bit as we come here. Now, as we think about figurative language and treating language as language is intended, uh, we have this little phrase in here that we have to deal with because Jesus says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. Well, let me, let me double-check that before I go on. What verse was that, people? Verse 8, thank you. Yeah, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. Whew. Memory is still working a little bit. This is, actually, this is not a blanket reference to all the leaders in the Old Testament, okay? Uh, this is the use of hyperbole to make a point. So... To give an example, if you remember when John the Baptist is beginning his ministry, or when John the Baptist's ministry in Matthew 3, 5, uh, we read that, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. It's the use of hyperbole to make a point. It's not that everyone without distinction came, right? Uh, but that the vast number, there's just vast numbers and vast crowds that are coming. So John the Baptist, all of Judea was coming. We have this, all who came before me. There were good leaders, right? We have people like Abraham and Moses and David. But the point he's making is, you know, the bad far outweigh the good. Have you ever read about the kings of Israel? How many good ones do we get, right? We had two or three good leaders out of, out of the whole lot, right? The well, I'm using Israel collectively, right? So, so we can make a distinction between the northern kingdom. Northern kingdom, zero. Southern kingdom, we get a couple, which is a good point. We've got to be careful how we use language, right? So what we see is there's a few that stand out in contrast to the many. By and large, their history has been riddled with false shepherds which is why we see the judgments in the past that we see. There are those who take life and ultimately one who came to give life. Now, life in verse 10 refers to quantity or degree of life, right? He says, I came to give life and to give it abundantly. Uh, he's not talking about health. He's not talking about wealth, right? He's talking about spiritual blessings that we can enjoy now, right? 
this relationship that we have with God. It's, it's about the, uh, not merely being alive, but having life, being full of life, right? Having a joy and stuff. Now, part of the, the purpose of uh, figurative language is to say more with less, you know, which is kind of ironic coming from me who says, often says uh, more, more than less, right? <clears throat> so we have the image of the thieves and the robbers, which echoes Israel's false shepherds who fed themselves, not, not, uh, not the flock. So if we look at the Old Testament background, isn't it interesting how much of the New Testament plays off of the Old? You should go back and read uh, Ezekiel chapter 34 where we see God denouncing the false shepherds of Israel, which consequently leads to God declaring that he will search out his sheep from peoples and countries to rescue, feed, and shepherd, which then transitions to God setting over them one shepherd from the line of David. Now, when Jesus teaches this about the shepherd in John 10, how many of you think John, uh, that he has uh, Ezekiel 34 in mind? I do. This would have been very familiar to each of them. This whole passage that talks about a denouncing of the false shepherds, God searching after his sheep, and God sending the one true shepherd. Which leads us to, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. We have this background for this imagery, which allows him to say more with saying less, because the people understood it. Now, what we learn is that the life that he gives is only possible because he will lay down his life for his sheep. We see this in verse 11, verse 15, verse 17, and verse 18. So now, not only do we have the prophesied expected shepherd, but we actually get a combination with the foretold suffering servant of Isaiah as well. So I'm the good shepherd was imagery for God in the Old Testament, now applied uh, to Jesus by Jesus. Language applied to Jesus by Jesus. Why do I say that? Because some people say Jesus never made any claims about himself. Let me tell you, he did. He did it directly. He did it implicitly. He did it in many ways. This is a claim to being not only the Messiah, but who was the good shepherd from the Old Testament? It was God. Jesus is making a claim not only to be the Messiah, but he's making an implicit claim that he is God who has come in the flesh to shepherd his people. This is language that has Old Testament background to it. And it's something that we quickly read over because we don't understand the Old Testament background. Now, when he says, I am the good shepherd, now, uh, when we think about good, we might think of things like, well, having the right tools for the trade, you know, the right skills, the right talents, the right abilities, maybe the right motivation so that, so that we're efficient at what we do and that we do it well. The Greek term also conveys the idea of noble and worthy, being the genuine deal, the true shepherd. So in contrast to the Pharisees who just kicked out the healed man from the synagogue, we see the true shepherd who seeks him out, right? The discourse, the historical discourse that just occurred in chapter 9 is being explained to us through metaphor and symbolism in chapter 10. And the imagery of shepherding, uh, you know, a shepherd would risk his life but not intentionally lay it down. But Jesus makes clear 
that he did not just risk his life. In other words, he didn't just, his life didn't come, death is the result, right? He didn't just risk his life. He says, I am the good shepherd because I intentionally lay it down for my sheep. The sheep that have gone astray. And so he pours out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors as the offering for our guilt, bearing our sin. That's Isaiah 53 which uses the same language of the straying sheep before coming into the suffering servant who will lay down his life to bear their sins. You see how the New Testament employs Old Testament imagery to convey more with less? And notice the intimacy, right? Now, uh, you were and you are important enough for him to lay down his life for you. Now, I don't mean this to be manipulative. I don't mean this to lay on a guilt trip. I know sometimes, you know, pulpits can be used in that way. You're important enough for him to lay down his life for you. And all I want to ask is, is he important enough to you to listen and to his voice and follow? And how closely are you following? Now, don't ever believe your life is unimportant, right? You're important enough for Jesus to lay down his life for you in contrast to the hired hand in verse 12. Now, the difference between the hired hand and the shepherd is ownership, right? The hired hand is not as committed because he's not as invested. So verses 12 through 15. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, see, there's the difference, the ownership, sees the wolf coming and leaves the shepherd and flees. He's basically saying, yeah, this isn't worth it anymore, Okay. And uh, so he's, she, uh, he flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So we have intimacy. We have interest. You're not a nobody. You're somebody to him. He knows your strengths. He also knows your weaknesses. Now, before you go off and think, well, great, I don't know about you, I'd rather people know my strengths and my weaknesses, right? But think about this for a moment. How can he properly lead you if he doesn't know your strengths and weaknesses? If he doesn't know you intimately? The shepherd can tend to your needs far greater if he knows you intimately and personally. And that includes the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We come down to verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Remember, this fold from verse 1 represents Judaism. Not of this fold means from outside Judaism. Jesus is not talking about other religions. He's talking about Gentiles. And it's the same picture we see throughout the Gospels. The Gospel came first to the Jews, leading them out, verse 3, those who recognize His voice and follow, and then it extends to the Gentiles. It's the same mode we see through the book of Acts. Once again, we see an echo of the Old Testament that foreshadows when all of the nations will come to and worship God as one flock under one shepherd and one community through the Messiah. And as we look at this text, what we see is faith is personal. Who hasn't heard, well, my faith is personal. I, I, I love it. People say, you know, oh, I don't talk about my faith. That's personal and private. You ever had somebody tell you that? Probably if you're trying to do evangelism, right? It's personal and it's intimate. I know my own. My own know me. They hear my voice. They follow. But notice it's also communal. One flock, one shepherd. 
You know, it's true that you do not need to belong to a community of faith in order to be saved. You only need to belong to the shepherd. But it's likewise true that the shepherd intends for you to be part of the flock, to be part of the community of faith. And there are certain things that we can only experience in the community of faith, which is why it's so important to stay connected. All right, I'm going off script here. This is just really on my heart right now. Technology is great. Technology is beautiful. We, we can't stream this to, you know, we, we can reach far more people through technology than we could without it. But part of the problem that COVID has caused is too many people are relying on streaming and not coming in person. And there are legitimate reasons for not to be connected to the flock. I'm not denying that. There are people who cannot physically come. That's who we want to stream for. But the reality is, is that's not how God intends you to worship from at home through a live stream. And if you're able, you should be connecting physically to a body of Christ. There are things that you can get personally in person. That's kind of redundant that you just can't get through a live stream. One flock, one shepherd. You don't have to be connected to be saved, but there are things that you're missing out on if you're not connected. You need to be connected. So Jesus used figures of speech to say more while saying less. And through the image of the good shepherd, he not only conveys ideas of intimacy and provision and protection, and the spiritual blessings, right? But he draws from this rich Old Testament heritage to reveal that he is the one that we should be listening to and following as the promised Messiah, as the true shepherd for God's people. And so we kind of come to the end of the, the text for today, and he says, there was again division. Imagine that. Division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Now for them, they kind of saw the two is connected, right? Uh, why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Right, which connects us to what just happened. Now, Mark Moore wrote, and I quote, his words are not the words of a raving lunatic. They are not normal, but neither are they nonsense. They carry their own force, authority, and sanity. And his deeds are not those of a demon-possessed man. He is not convulsing about in the dust, drooling on himself. He is mixing saliva with dust and healing blind eyes. That is neither natural nor demonic. This man at least deserves a hearing. The very thing that many in his day were not willing to give to him. He at least deserves a hearing. Are you listening to his voice? Are you learning to follow? And if so... How closely are you following? Amen. In your bulletin, you have a communication card, and we invite you to think about how God is speaking to your heart this morning. Uh, and then we invite you to offer that up as, as part of your worship, uh, as part of your next steps. As we uh, prepare ourselves for communion and for stewardship, uh, Jesus uh, said, All whoever came before me are thieves and robbers. Uh, verse 8. 
by looking at the context, we can say that Jesus is talking about uh, false shepherds or false leaders of the people, uh, particularly the Pharisees and religious leaders who honored God with their lips while their hearts were far from him. These false leaders, uh, they pounded people with the law. They knew little of God's grace. And judging by the metaphor of the hired hand, at best they used religion for their own interests. And at, uh, with the image of the thief and robber, at worst, uh, they're intentional about robbing people of the life God intended for them. Now, in contrast, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And he focuses on his relationship to the sheep who know him, listen to his voice, who follow. For he not only risked his life for them, but he voluntarily lays it down for them. Now, Carson points out, and I quote, the words for, uh, which is Greek hyper, you know, at least that's how it's written out for me. Uh, the words for the sheep suggest sacrifice. The preposition itself is ambiguous, but in John, it's always occurring in a sacrificial context. In no case does this suggest a death with merely an exemplary significance. In such case, the death envisioned is on behalf of someone else. He laid down his life, and he took it up again for you. As we come to our time of stewardship, will you now listen and follow him? So I want to remind you that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is new covenant in my blood. Do this as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until it comes again. Let us pray. O oh, gracious God, as we come to this table, may we truly be listening to the message that Jesus is giving us through calling himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Lord, as we come to this table, may we recognize not only the intimacy that you desire, but the sacrifice that you have made that that intimacy may be possible. And may we choose not to walk from a distance and following. But may we choose to draw near and to walk intimately and closely with you as you have made it possible through Christ your Son. Amen. Small, small group, we'll just do it one. We invite you to, to come and to reflect on your relationship with Christ as you come and receive.
Terry, and I'm going to use the third song from the first part at the end. So we'll close with praise, praise okay. the name. Oh, praise the name. So while you make that change, I will tell you guys something. <laughs> I'll give her a little time. So I ran across something the other day that I thought was interesting, and I think that it plays in um, to what you were talking about earlier. Um, I shared it with you yesterday. Um, someone was talking about Luke 15, which is where we hear about the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the, the parable of the prodigal son. And uh, chapter 15 starts with, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And the person who was sharing this was saying that the word, the Greek word for welcome there, I cannot remember what it was, but that it was more than welcome, that he compared it to, it wasn't just a, hey, come on in, how are you doing? It was a, imagine a soldier returning from a tour of duty and his wife and family coming to embrace him and love on him because he has returned. That is the picture of welcoming that they were talking about. They were saying it to insult Jesus when actually it just gives us such a more intimate picture of what he has done for us, how welcoming he is, how much that good shepherd loves and cares for us. So it is that, that very intimate type of welcoming. All the things that he has done to show us how much he loves us. I mean, sure, it was enough to die on a cross for us but but he showed us over and over and over before he ever got to that point how much he loved us so keep that in mind as we close in worship i hope that you're good to go okay and we will stand as we sing oh praise the name
I don't know what your other song was, but I'm going to say good on the audible. And it doesn't matter if you don't remember how to say the Greek word, as long as you know what the Greek word means. If I give her that latitude, then I expect the same for myself, right? You know, as you think about following Jesus, it begins with fixing your eyes on him. So fix your eyes on the shepherd, listen to his voice, respond to his voice. As you go forth to seek to listen intently that you might follow closely and intimately with the shepherd who laid down his life for you. Amen.